1: And the scribe with award-winning journalist Scott Burnside and former NHL goaltender Mike McKenna,
2: a member of the Nation Network of podcasts, and delivered by DoorDash. Hey
1: everybody, here we go! Another edition of the Suitcase and the Scribe as we just inch our way into the Western Western Conference Final. Yes, but the Conference Final down to Final Four activity. Mike McKenna, as always, in St. Louis. And what a treat this morning, Dave Jackson, longtime NHL referee. 1,546 regular season games, trip to Sochi in the 14 Olympics. Need credit for those four minor pro games you worked as a mentor at the end. So we're giving you 1,550 games in our book uh, Dave. And right the great on. thing is now your job with ESPN as uh, as the lead, um, officials analyst. I don't even know. Do you have a special title, but thanks for wow. coming to hang out. It's so great. How are, how are you doing? How are things in Denver, which is your home?
0: Everything's great. Denver gets 300 days of sunshine, but it's been raining for the last 24 hours. So I don't know what's, uh, what's happening here, but, uh, thanks for having me. As far as uh, my title goes, uh, People call me the rules expert. I'm uncomfortable with that. I like rules analyst. That leaves some room for air.
2: <laughs> well, as you know, everybody on the social media gets things right all the time. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you have to chime in. Have you found it to be a difficult transition being in such a public position now? Which I, I mean, like ironically, when you're refereeing on the ice, it's public, but it's not because you're protected. You're not in front of the media. You're not from the cameras. Was this a hard transition for you to be able to transfer what you did on the ice into
0: explaining things now on camera? Much harder than I thought it was going to be because until this position even came about, I would sit on the couch and go, no, they're getting it wrong. I mean, I wish I could put me on. I can explain this and I can tell, you know, I can get it right and let the viewers know what's happening. But I didn't realize that I had to do it in 10 to 20 seconds and be really concise Mm -hmm. and get it right. And when I first started, it was, it was difficult sort of, you know, condensing things and trying to explain it without confusing the viewers even more. So it's a work in progress, but I think I've, I think I've gotten a lot better at that. And, uh, you know, I'm not always right, but I say what I, what I think, what I would have called. And then we let the viewer decide whether the call is right or not.
1: It's amazing. And I'm not, I'm not throwing dirt on NBC, you know, for the long time that they had the the national rights in in the U S Um, But it just seems, and of course, both ESPN and TNT have um, people like yourself, Dave, who can come on and and explain. And we've had so many just critical, interesting moments. We'll get to those in a minute. But I just think it's been so refreshing to be able to, you know, to turn to someone like you to, you know, share your insight and your expertise doesn't have to necessarily be right. But you can tell people what the mindset is for that group on the ice, wherever they are and whatever it is. And that group in Toronto, you know, in the video review uh, war room, um, when it first came to you, the idea of doing this, I mean, was there some hesitation? Did did you talk to your colleagues who are still calling games or what was that process like when you said, no, this, I want to do something like this.
0: Oh man, I jumped at it. It was, it was, you know, it, it was fantastic. I mean, just a perfect job. I, they, uh, ESPN came to me, said I could do most of my games from home. Uh, we put a little studio in my office and I get to watch hockey. I get paid to watch hockey, you know, during a regular season, two, three times a week and almost every night in playoffs for the first two rounds. Um, it, it's just been fantastic. And my bosses at ESPN are great. They don't, they don't want me to be a controversial figure. They don't want me to go out and have to be sensationalistic and, and criticize the officials. What they want me to do is to engage the viewer. They want it. They want to grow the game. They want to grow the, grow the audience, grow the viewers. And you do that by explaining the rule. And they want me to explain the rule, explain what the situation room in Toronto is looking at, what the criteria is to make this call. And then let the call just be what it is. and Let the viewers decide whether they follow the correct criteria or not. It's not for me to criticize the, war room or criticize the on-ice officials. It's for me to explain what the process is.
2: Yeah. Do you think that's ever taken you into kind of a tough mental space where, you know, let's say you've explained the world to the best of your ability and you believe one way how it should be, which your opinion's going to be out there. And then something contradiction, d- contradicts it. Have you faced that this year? Uh, and when that happens, how do, you, how do you go about, you know, voicing your own opinion, but still trying to explain what the call on the ice was in the moment?
0: Well, I struggled with that early, I didn't really know how I would, uh, you know, deal with that when it happened. As I got more comfortable, what I started to do was I would explain the rule and then I would explain whether I support the call on the ice or not and whether I would have made the same call. And then I always preface the next sentence with, don't forget, it's a judgment call. Mm -hmm. It becomes a judgment call. And nothing is saying that my judgment or nothing is saying that the referee's judgment or the war room's judgment is any better than anyone else's. It just ends up with the situation room's judgment and we have to live with their judgment and right, wrong, or different. There's usually no right or wrong. It's usually a 50, 50 call. And sometimes it goes the way I would have called it on the ice. Other times it gets overturned and you just live with that. I mean, as long as the situation room is consistent and on the calls they make, then we can live with that. I mean, that's what they're there for.
1: I'm curious because <clears throat> I'm wondering, I'm guessing that the, the group that's on the ice doing the playoffs in the regular season, that they might welcome this kind of discourse, like someone with your experience who can help share, you know, the information, do you hear much or often from active officials about things that are going on that either you've said or, you know, specific incidents that have come up. Do you have much contact with that active group
0: now, given your new role? I do. I I get not so much the guys that were doing the game because they're not watching, but from guys that are on their night off, watching the hockey game and they'll see a play and they'll see um, confusion. And then I will come on and explain the rule and they'll shoot me a quick text and say, thanks that's what's been missing for years. Like we've never had, we've never had a voice. Yeah. And the only voice we've ever had, you know, comes from hockey ops, but it's usually the next morning or whatever Mm -hmm. you're doing in real time for us. And like, you're doing our, you're being our voice for us. And even there's been, there has been times and people will accuse me sometimes of, well, I'm always going to agree with my peers. No, that's not true. Yeah. There's times that I have to admit that the call made in the ice was probably not the best call. And then I just try and explain probably why it was missed where Mm -hmm. positioning comes into uh to factor into the whole situation bad luck sometimes or just you know lack of focus can happen i'll explain the rule and i've even had guys call me and go you know what we missed the call but you made you added a human element to it as to why we missed it and and they appreciate that
2: yeah dave i've always wished that You guys had more of a voice as active referees. And I think part of this is just my Carnival Barker wrestling fan background that I'd love to see referees have an opportunity and linesman officials in general to say why they made calls. And I understand protecting the officials. I get that. Um, But like you say, there was never an outlet. And, you know, goalies kind of get the same thing. Sometimes if we have a bad game, hardly ever do we get the mic. It's pretty rare. Exactly. You know, we can't defend yeah. ourselves. And it's like, you play a great game. Here you go. Talk about it. I don't really want to, because if I played a great game, it means my teammates probably had a lot to do with it. Sure. Um, you know, and I think that that's what makes your position unique now is that you have a voice on air and a social media presence now. And you know, frankly, man, like people come at you and you just wonder like, Where's the reality? Like, Dave, can you, can you answer me this objectively? Do referees and linesmen have preferential treatment of any team in
0: the National Hockey League? <laughs> no, we don't. And what people don't fail to understand is that, and I say this in a good way, it's not a negative. We are so micromanaged. Every call that's made, every call that's missed, every decision we make, like, like people see a referee call – five penalties a game, Uh, in their opinion, they missed two or three. So there's, you know, eight calls. No, the referees make a thousand decisions every night. Every time there's a body check, every time a guy falls down, every time the puck is shot, I mean, every time the puck crosses the blue line, there's a decision to be made and they don't, they don't realize this, but in Toronto, that situation room, they've got somebody assigned to every single game and there's somebody, if I'm refereeing one night, there's somebody watching my game, dedicated to my game with three, four different monitors. And they're 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 jotting down every call I make, every call they think I miss, clipping it. And it's on my laptop when I get back to my hotel room. So for a referee to go out there, if he cares anything about his job and keeping his job and being successful and getting to the playoffs, which is all bonus money. If you don't perform during the season, you don't get playoffs. If you don't perform in the first round, you don't move on to the second round. So to think that you would go out there and compromise you're compromise your livelihood because you want to favor one team. I mean, that, that is just, that's job suicide. (laughs) There's just no way you would do it. And all you want to do is get the call, right. At at any expense, you want to be perfect. Does it happen? No, seldom. You're never perfect. But as far as wanting one team to win or or favoring one player, not a chance, but nobody believes me. They all think it's a conspiracy theory.
1: (laughs) So and here's a great thing. Before we started to tape, you were joking that your fingers were bloody from trying to explain a call last night. You were even working the first game of the Western conference final in Denver between the, uh, Avs and the Oilers and, and what a Titanic night that was. In fact, you're going to do tonight's first Eastern conference game in New York, or that game is taking place in New York. You're in Denver between Correct. the uh, Rangers and the, uh, uh Tampa Bay lightning. But last night was fascinating because, of course, at the end of the first period, um, just after Edmonton scored, Colorado comes back down, scores a goal that is so tight, and uh, Jay Woodcroft challenges it from the Oiler bench on uh, the basis they believed it was offside. And just so fascinating how that call was, A, how it was made, and then how it was later explained. Can you walk us through that? Like when you see that unfold, Dave, what are you thinking right away? And, you know, are you, cause it's called called a good goal right on the ice. So I just, I'm wondering if you could walk us through what you saw from your vantage point last night, even though it wasn't technically your, technically your game.
0: Sure. I mean, I was sitting on the couch watching it and from my first view of it, you see a real quick play when they show a replay. My first thing was, Oh, that's offside. Yeah. That's offside. And in real time, in real time, it's offside. I got to give credit to that linesman. And I'm going to say, he knew what he was doing. He didn't guess. He got it right. Yeah. And that is a tough thing to get right. Because before we had an offside challenge, which goes back, what, four or five years? Yeah. Um, that would probably be called offside. Right. Right. Because the, it, just in real time with the human eye, that looks offside. Now, once they brought the offside challenge in and they're able in high definition television to slow that play down frame by frame, that is when you get into the literal interpretation of the rule. And all it really was, if you slow it down to the – you can slow it down as slow as you want. You can pretend Makar was standing still. It doesn't change the application of the rule. Makar's teammate was in an offside position. Makar was in an onside position. He propelled the puck across the blue line, did not touch it once it crossed the blue line until his teammate was tagged up. So that people are getting caught up in the whole possession versus control. Yeah. I can ice the puck and I'm still in possession of that puck until the icing's completed. I was the last guy to touch it, but I'm not in control of that puck. Yeah. Makar basically dumps the puck in, but he only dumps it in an inch. Yeah. And yeah. it happens so fast in a nanosecond that in that time when that puck crosses the line to when he touches it, in theory, it's a delayed offside of a, you know, of a millisecond.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: And he is not he's in possession of the puck, but he's not in control of it for the purpose of that rule. He's not touching the puck. And that's what people, even when I explain to them over and over and over, they just refuse to believe it because <laughs> what they saw live is there's nothing changing their mind that that was offside. Mm-hmm. But when you break it down frame by frame, he never touched the puck in an offside position until his yeah, teammate I- tagged up.
1: My guess is Avalanche fans are right on board with that description that, that maybe it's the oiler fans who don't buy
0: that at all, but. Well, it's uh, funny. uh, The amount of fans that, that, that were tweeting at me going, Hey, I have no dog in this race and they, but you're still wrong. And that's, that's a terrible call. And you're just protecting your buddies. And just, I mean, I can't win. I don't expect to win. I just, the people that have an open mind will accept my explanation and others will just go around with their head in the sand and refuse to accept it. But, that's what hockey's all about. Passion and well,
2: fandom. It's a really hard one because at first glance it does, it's clearly offsides. I mean, the puck is supposed to go into the zone before the player. That's what your mind is telling you. That's what totally. we've seen repeatedly. And it was really just a confined area tag up. Essentially. It's just, exactly. we're not used to that. A tag up happens deep in the zone. It took me a solid 20 minutes to understand what was going on, man. Yep. Like, and I think I have a decent grasp of the rules. I needed it broken down. I needed help to understand that one, but it was correct. And and we've seen this a couple times this this postseason now. And and I want to ask you specifically about uh, the Coleman non-goal for the Calgary Flames. It was deemed that he kicked it puck in. And, you know, to me, this is another one that was really gray area. You know, this was... I can see a kicking motion. I can see him turn his ankle. I can see him propel his foot forward, but it doesn't look like he's kicking a field goal, you know? And that's where, man, if you're in that moment on the ice, is there any, how could you possibly not call that a goal in the moment? Like that's the type of call to me that one has to go back to Toronto to get a group, a group uh, decision on, but you know, from your vantage point, what did you see from that? Did you think that that was what the distinct kicking motion is by the rule of what they're looking for?
0: No, I I was put on the spot. I was actually working that game. And they came to me right away. And what I said on the air was, I support Eric Furlatt's call. And had I been on the ice, I would have done the exact same thing. And I said, this goal will probably stand. It's not a distinct kicking motion, was my first reaction. And then, like I said earlier, I prefaced the next sentence with, but I'm only seeing this one angle over and over and over. Toronto has a group of five or six men that have made this call all season long they know what they need to do to be consistent with all the calls they've made all season. They have much better replays. They have much better slow motion HD hmm. and it becomes a 50, 50 judgment call. Yeah. And as far as officials on the ice, I mean, I just feel bad for the guys in the ice getting crucified saying they made the wrong call. Once that, once that part crosses yeah. the goal line and what people don't realize here, a lot of people were, were tweeting at me saying, I don't know why the officials decided to go upstairs. They should have waited for uh, Edmonton to challenge this play. This is not a challenge play. We have reviewed goals since about 1997. From when the video was first brought in, before we had challenges, any puck that crosses the goal line, even an open net goal late in the game, the referee at center ice does not drop the puck until Toronto confirms the goal. And that's all that happened here. Referee on the ice made his decision, and now they cannot drop the puck. There's no challenge. Toronto reviews that goal and says, yes, it crossed the line legally, or no, it did not.
1: Yeah. I, I, it's, I mean, I, the, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I, I get that. But you refereed through, you know, the evolution of, you know, the introdu- introduction of video and its role in the game. <clears throat> do you ever, you know, do you ever wish that there were, you know, that, that the game didn't have that? Or do you think that, Especially the new generation of officials coming up through the system and you know coming into the NHL, that it's really part of the toolbox now. Whether you're a lines man or woman or referee, that it's it really is an integral part of it. Or do you sometimes wish for just the it's human? <laughs> it's a human part of the game. We're all you know, it's a game of mistakes or. But, do you ever think of it that way?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I got to be honest with you. I'm jealous and envious of what's available right now <laughs> because people will ask me, hey, do you remember any like, like think back in your whole career. I mean, I started my first NHL game was 1990. Aquila Fleur was on the ice in the starting lineup and. Would, no would, helmet, would, hair flowing. I did have a helmet. I I I was because I was signed in 1989. I had to wear a helmet, but I did the American Hockey League with no helmet, hair flowing and all that, and my scalp's full of stitches. But <laughs> um, it was one referee. I I worked one referee for seven years. I did you know 500 games one referee, and people ask me, do you have any memorable calls? And and really, you know, like as a goaltender, I'm not sure, Mike, you can speak to this but they go do you have any really memorable plays and what you wish you had was the you know the game saves that you made but you probably hark back to the goals that cost your team the game that you should have had and they haunt you right as a referee for me anyways I look back to maybe 10 calls in my career that really altered the course of my season whether they happened in playoffs or or whatever and there were mistakes I made not willful mistakes, just mistakes. Whether it was a follow through on a high stick for a double minor penalty, whether it was a major penalty that I didn't call that I should have, or a major penalty I called that really wasn't to have the availability now to look at that major penalty and rescind it to two, or to get rid of a high stick when his own teammate high sticks him in the face. Everyone in the world sees the call and gets it right, except me. So, I think it's great. Uh, I mean, I really do. Do I think we need to expand it further? I don't. We don't want the game being slow, slowed down any more than it is. But I think it's in a good place right now.
2: Short of winning a championship as a goaltender, you're right. that the, 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 whole, the bad goals haunt you more than the great saves you make. Totally. Because you can't forget those. You know, if you make a great save to win a Stanley Cup, let's think of Marc-Andre Fleury in 2007? Nine. Nine. Nine, thank you. I'm only off yep. by three years. But like, Nick, let's you your- make... Yes. And you make that last save to win a Stanley cup. I've had that talk with Mark Andre before is yeah, that, you know, that's about as good as it gets. I'm like, I can only imagine because I've never been in your shoes. I I know exactly what you mean by that, Dave. I'm, I, 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 worry. I'm curious about this when it comes to officials that, you know, I felt for a long time, the personality was there. You know, I mean, Mick Magoo would come on the ice and everybody boo him and Carrie Fraser's hair was perfect and jump on the boards. And there was some pomp and some pageantry. And then I felt like it got really sterile for a long time. But now that the referees are miked up again and Wes McCauley's made something of a name for himself, being able to emphasize bye for fighting. And, you know, like, do you think the personality is going to be back in the game for the officials do you think it's a good thing i really enjoy it i'd like to see more of it but do you think it's something that will be encouraged and allowed by the nhl
0: i think i think it will and i love it uh i think wes was the first one that really come out of the box and be that way yeah. but that's <laughs> it depends I,
2: on a person's personality too exactly. right? some guys won't
0: do it and i go back to um the movie was it was it airplane with uh, leslie nielsen when he plays the umpire
1: <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> and he makes the first strike call and he's super tentative and they tell him you know you got to show more emotion so he makes the next strike call a little more emotion and the crowd starts getting behind him and he makes the pumps him out and the crowd's going nuts and he's like all right like this is pretty cool i'm going to be very so i think wes i think we can hark back to that disallowed goal call where he had the pregnant pause going back about four or five years ago and it's the call on the ice is, and he waited, <laughs> no goal. And everybody was laughing and cheering and all that. And I think that sort of spawned from Wes, but the ability, like, we can use this mic to our advantage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We can, we can show we have a personality. And I think as long as it comes natural, I think as long as it's organic, Stephen Walkham told the guys at training camp, I was told that he wants them to be more demonstrative on the microphone. Yeah. There were guys calling penalties. He goes, You're calling a penalty. You need to show you believe in your own call. You can't go up there and mumble with your head down on the microphone. You watch the guys in football. You know, they are absolute about their call. Yeah. There's no doubt left in anyone's mind that they're making that call and why they're making it. And he wanted the referees to be the same way. So guys actually practiced it at a training camp. He told them, I know it sounds corny, go home and practice in front of the mirror. That's so they want guys <laughs> to be on that mic. They want them. If they want to give a small explanation, they're encouraged <clears throat> to do that. Yeah but it has to come naturally. You can't force somebody that's just not comfortable doing that or somebody that wants to try and be West Macaulay. Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah. You've got to find your own way.
2: Yeah. There was a, there was a funny one the other night. And I can't remember which game it was where whoever the official was came over and said, yeah, this guy's got two for slashing. And everybody in the box has one has roughing. <laughs> everybody else <laughs> has a roughing yeah. and skated away. And it was, <laughs> and it was perfect. Cause it, it like, it wasn't like technically the way you're supposed to announce it. I'm sure. But in that moment, you could see the frustration from the crew that this uh-huh. game's getting ridiculous. Everybody else in the box has a rough. <laughs> and I knew what it meant, yep. and I thought it was awesome. I'd love to see more of that.
1: <laughs> All right, Dave, we're going to let you go, but I have one final question. You're getting ready. You're doing a game tonight, the Eastern Conference Final, Game 1. You Have there been moments where you're like, okay, I – I miss this. I let me, I, I want to come back. Or are, are you comfortable in your new perch and that's your Zen about that? Or what's, what is you know, has it, has it got the juices flowing again or what's it been like for you?
0: Yeah. Well, when I retired, I worked two years for the league in development. I was a supervisor uh, working for the league in the American hockey league. Uh, I would probably still be doing that. had have COVID not kind of intervened and, you know, kind of furloughed me for a year. Um Do I miss being on the ice? I was at the game, the Avalanche game last week, uh, game five against St. Louis, and the guys skate out in the ice, and the lights are down, and the music's pumping, and then we get the anthem being sung, and I turn to my buddy. Well, I was actually with Brad Watson, the other retired referee, and I turn and I go, "Man, I miss this! Like, like I really miss the pomp and circumstance of being out there and being part of the show. Like, you know, we had, you know, you got." Landeskog and McKinnon and, and those guys on the ice. I mean, O'Reilly, you're just saying, this is an amazing privilege to be out on the ice with these guys. And then Brad said, yeah, but do you miss everything about it. And then I thought about the afternoons trying to sleep with my stomach in knots and, or the next morning when you've, when you've made a bad call and you know, you made a bad call and cost you in the game and you know, people think the referees just laugh it off and, oh, well, I screwed the game up. Well, no, that stays with you stays with you mm-hmm. for days. I mean, you just want to curl up sometimes in a fetal position and, and cry. I mean, you go like yeah. I ruined that game. And that that really stays with you. That's why we try so hard to be perfect. And it, when it doesn't go your way, it stays with you and it haunts you and I don't miss that at all.
1: Yeah. Well, I sleep you know what, I
0: sleep a lot better when I make the wrong <laughs> call on TV than what I did on the ice.
2: <laughs> I can tell you on one hand, I play, I dressed probably 12, I don't know, 11, 1200 games I dressed. I can count on one hand the number of times an official ruined a game. Right. I can count on about forty-five hands the number m- number of times a goaltender screwed up a game, <laughs> myself yeah. included. Yeah. So it, perception—it's always referees, goalies were right there as well. I think that's a big reason why we've we've always had kind of a kinship. Why well, I always wanted to say hi to the referees and the officials <laughs> when I came on the ice, and of course I was biased because my grandpa skated with the stripes until he was 76 right. until he died so um it's really
0: cool that you'd come on and give us some yeah. of these stories and this insight dave it's really appreciated well yeah. thanks mike and you, just, you reminded me of a funny story a gm came to our training camp once and he freely admitted he goes since i've been gm of my team we've never lost a hockey game we've <laughs> either won or been screwed <laughs> <laughs> And I just, that's always stuck with me. Like, you know, we got to find a scapegoat somewhere and and it's us. And you know, that's, that's the job we accept.
1: Well, listen, it's been, uh, I think you've done a, a, a terrific job with ESPN and can't wait to see how it unfolds for you tonight. And you are welcome to come on our podcast anytime you feel like it, Dave, it's been a treat.
0: Oh, it's been a privilege. Thanks for having me guys.
1: Mike, that was it was so much fun to have Dave on. And uh, I love his candor about, you know, the and I think people it's easy for them to, you know, to cast stones from outside, but Mm -hmm. how those bad calls stay with officials for for a long time, because they care, right? They don't care who wins and loses, who wins or loses. They care about their craft. And I, I, I just Man, I I have I've always tried to have a strong appreciation for officials and not pile on. So that was, I, I thought that was fun. It's not an easy
2: job, and they sign up for it, um, and, and it's a good living. It's a hard living. Though. There's a lot of travel and everything else involved with it. Um, but that perspective is really refreshing. And the only thing I I didn't really get to uh, get towards with Dave was just asking him how you know when you're when you've built in a whole craft like this and you've done everything you can to be the best in the world at it. how does it make you feel when everybody thinks you're so replaceable and they can just find the NHL can just magically find better referees somewhere. I mean, these are the best officials in the world in the NHL. Yeah. Just like the players, you know, I mean, (laughs) there's a reason why I didn't stick in the NHL. I wasn't one of the best in the world, (laughs) but these officials, they are, they're the pinnacle. So um, I I had one official tell me once they hate everybody equally. Um, (laughs) I think Dave's words, uh, they back that up. I would say Scott, (laughs)
1: So just before we, uh, we move on, I've been really a, a you know, I, I think that you know, the, the officiating in the playoffs in general, the mindset and the standard, I think it has been problematic. And I know Gary Bettman addressed it. In fact, I happened to be there for before game one in Carolina against Boston, you know, that they talk to the officials and coaches and GMs before the start of the playoffs and the standard is the standard. And that's what to, has been, should be called and will be called. I think, in general, I think this playoff year has been pretty darn good. I, do you? Are you with me on that? I just think I like that there have been calls late in games. I like that there have been stick fouls and obstruction calls, and the the things that sometimes I felt in the past fell by the boards as the games became more critical or late in specific games. I, I think you know. I go back to you know Pittsburgh. Loses a series. They were up three one on a on a power play goal in Game Seven to the New York Rangers. It was a clear foul. I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would have been called all the time, but I, I feel it's been pretty damn good. How, are you? How do you feel?
2: Yeah, I always give glowing glowing reviews to the officials. Um, but the only thing that's bothered me is I think that has really relaxed as a standard from the first to second round, and then even yeah. the third. And and I don't mind that because. I really like the way the second round and last night was called between Colorado and Edmonton. I I'm on board with that. I mean, there's a certain amount of hard hockey that needs to be allowed. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, man, but you do need to be able to cross check somebody a little bit like you don't need to break their back, but you need to be able to fight for position. And that's part of it. That's part of the game. Right. And the first round was just so militant in the calls and it's, and it's by design. And and then we turn around and say, well, the players adapted. And I just still don't think the players adapted much. I, I think it's relaxed a little bit. But where it is now, yeah, man, I'm totally happy with it. I, it's always up to the teams and the players to win a hockey game. Yeah. It's not up to the officials, no matter how many calls there are. So I'm good with it. But I tell you what, we've, we've seen some entertaining hockey recently, haven't we? Oh, my gosh. Like, Scott, <laughs> I... I We had a great time talking to Dave, but this game last night between the Avalanche and the Oilers was out of control. I mean, I looked at this game and thought, this is a mess. Like, I don't know whether I should like this. My goalie heart is saying, I I don't know if I'm okay with this, but I was so entertained. So how can I look at an eight, six game objectively and say that this was good hockey. It is, it, it wasn't, was it? It was an unbelievable display of skill, a terribly, terrible display of defense and a calamity of oddities, man. Yeah. All the goalies played Scott. Like
1: how do we look at this game and reflect on, and reflect on it and project forward to game two? Yeah. I, I must admit, I kind of like Mike Smith who last he gave up six and and his team was this far away from sending it to overtime. So, you know, Mike gives way to Mikko Koskinen. I didn't even think Mike was all that bad, really. I mean... No, I didn't either. (laughs) You know, you give up six, you think, okay. And, and, you know, listen, Mike, there's been some pendulum swings to Mike's game. I didn't think he was bad, but I thought he had a sort of a, you know, obviously we can't be giving up a touchdown sort of response to it. And uh, to me, that is the great... Like, you know, I don't know what their numbers were on TNT last night, but I can only imagine they will go up exponentially for game two tomorrow night. Like, who doesn't mm-hmm. want? I wish that game was starting at noon today.
2: Yes. Right? And there's a, there's a real bump, Scott, that when things start to happen, social media fires up and people catch on. Yeah, Like you see this happen through sports and like when this game starts to get to be six, five by what middle of the second period or so people are tuning in because, Oh my gosh, like they're scoring, there's right. chaos. And um, and I think that's real that nowadays you can get a bump through social and and yes. finally the NHL and, and TNT, especially have harnessed that. They have great feeds now that they're putting video out for every goal. Um, But I, I look at this game and just think like it's, this is going to be a really unpredictable series in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, I, by the way, I love that Mike Smith was on the mic after the game. They didn't yeah, hire no. I love that. Like, that yeah. needs to happen more often. And he's always there. He always stands up for it. Yeah. I'm all about that. Um, but I, I think Colorado was just better last night. Yeah. It was similar to the St. Louis series in that way. Yep. But you Edmonton, you can't count out, period, man. Like, it just... they only had, what, two players in their I don't know how many players only one forward didn't have a point last night. I think maybe two like, what
1: and yeah. it's, they're getting, you know, we, I did the preview for daily Faceoff, off but again, it, it, you know, so much focus as there should be on Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl mm-hmm. and, you know, the depth on both those teams. And again, we saw it, it was in spades on both sides, you know, JT Comfer again, you know, second game in a row, Too he's gross. lighting it up. Um And, You know, you're seeing Derek Ryan, you know, from deep in the Oiler lineup. I think that's the compelling part of this series is that both teams, if they can continue to get production from up and down the lineup, we may see more of these kinds of games. I want to ask you, though, about, you know, sort of lost in this a little bit um, is with Darcy Comper. Uh, pulling himself out of the game with what the ads are calling an upper body injury and Jared Bednar, very circumspect post game, as you expect a coach to be, is it day to day, you know, what's the nature of it. But as a, as a goalie, and as you watch that unfold with Darcy kumper making the decision that he can't mm-hmm. carry on and Pavel Francouz going in well, I thought was pretty good, even though he gave up three, what's your, because that has the potential, I think, to change the complexion of this series as well. It does, but I actually think that
2: the Avalanche are in a good spot with their goaltending. Yeah. I think Pavel Francouz is an excellent goaltender, and I think that about Darcy Kemper too. I just felt like this whole playoffs, I've written about it, that I don't think Kemper's had a chance to get into a rhythm, yeah. and that's affected his puck stopping ability. What concerns me with this, from Kemper's standpoint, is that he did take himself out, and it's deemed upper body. And you know, I, I, who knows, right? Like that's yeah. he took a couple shots off the mask. He took a stick to the eye last series. We don't know what's affecting him. Yeah. Um, and, and from that standpoint for him as an athlete, I mean, that just, that just makes me nervous, man. I want to see a guy be able to be healthy and play, but I think Francois is, is played well when he came in. And I think he is somebody that if he was a lot younger, would be a real hot commodity in the NHL. Yeah. Like he's his number, he's been like a 920 or above save percentage everywhere he's been for a decade. Doesn't matter what league he was in. Um so I, I think that the Avalanche are actually in pretty good shape here when it comes to that. Um, um, but the other end, like how many games are we going to see like this for more than two goalies
1: play? <laughs> well, that yes. I mean, that's the whole I it just is. And here's here's the interesting thing for me, and not just because I picked the Oilers. And anyway, it's not about me for a moment. Um, but I just like the, <laughs> just like the way the Oilers are like, uh, you know, we've been here, we did that. What was it, nine, mm-hmm. nine six in nine, game six. one against Calgary? Like to me, this is a team. Like if you were, if this happened in another series. You might be going, okay, that sets the tone for what will follow. Mm-hmm. Where I don't know that it sets any kind of tone. Like we could see, you know, two-nothing oiler in game two, or yeah. we could see six five and triple over. I like I just think the oilers are in a place where they're like, okay, let's we've been here, we've done that, we're gonna move on now. I I don't know.
2: I agree. It comes from the top. Look at Jay Woodcroft's comments after the game about, hey, we scored six goals on their goaltending. We got to feel good about that. I bet they don't. like. He's putting a positive slant on a game that the Oilers just allowed eight goals. And you're trying to keep your team positively engaged. You're trying to let them realize that we're still in this. We can clean some things up, but we did some good things. We scored six goals. So I think that's a different mindset for Edmonton. I think this team is so much more mature than where they've ever been.
1: yeah.
2: And everything that I've learned about this game is that the leadership is so important. And that comes from your coach. That comes from your best players. Yeah. And man, I tell you, I think Connor McDavid's taken huge strides as a captain this year. And and literally like the last two years, I think, yeah. because you can just, you can see that emotional investment in him and you can see it in his legs and his feet too, not just his face, how hard he skates. So Edmonton's never out of a game. And like I say, I think this could be a long series. I I got two people that I want to highlight. I think Zach Hyman has been phenomenal for Edmonton, the whole playoffs a little bit under the radar. And man, if I'm in the same locker room as Darren Helm for the avalanche, I'm giving that dude high fives nonstop. He's been so good in the playoffs Yes. And, and I can remember reading an article about him maybe a year or two ago, or I, I think he kind of didn't know if he was going to get another year of hockey.
1: Yeah.
2: And here he is playing his ass off for Colorado, yeah. leading the charge. Like he's getting good chances, but he's also playing effective grind hockey. I love that. I love seeing the older guys have that boost of energy. Cause he's yeah. been really good for
1: Colorado. Yeah, totally. But a lot of, you know, um, listen, Joe Sackick's done a, you know, both Ken Holland, it's interesting, these two, you know, they're sort of at the polar end uh, opposites in terms of, you know, a lot of criticism of Kenny Holland over the last couple of years and the work that he's done in in uh, Edmonton. But, you know, Brett Kulak, I think, has been such a nice addition playing, you know, sort of in that four, five, six hole, mostly the mm-hmm. 5-6 hole, but a really nice add there. Zach Hyman, I mean, it's a lot of – I think you wonder, right? Oh, it's a big dollar. It's a long-term – and not to bring the Leafs into it to drag them through once again, but could they not have used a Zach Hyman in in game six or seven against Tampa? And I just, the joy that Zach Hyman brings to every Mm. moment on the ice, man, it's been, it's been great. And I'm with you, Joe Sackett, very low profile, very, you know, what he used to call him. Well, we called him that and he knew it, but he would come out at a competition when he was still playing here comes quoteless Joe. And we are like, yeah. <laughs> but that was, he has in a very understated way. I think, you know, Darren Helm is, is a, such a great example of the kind mm-hmm. of addition to a team, you know, that is trying to find that final piece to the puzzle. And you're right. It's been fun to watch. Yeah. All right. I think I, we're going to, I think, think they've they're...
2: quietly created a good culture there.
1: Yeah, quietly. totally. All right. We're going to do a little shift to the Eastern conference final in the second year. But before that, Mike, as always, Need to remind people that DoorDash is the proud sponsor of the nation of nation network of podcasts, restaurants and more delivered right to your door. So it's, it's an important time for DoorDash.
2: It is. We had a little Thai food the other day that came nice. from Manet Thai down the road and uh, that, that every week it saves us. So <laughs> my, my, my wife loves the. Uh she loves the pad thai, of course, but she also likes Thai Rama, which is very nice. It's kind of like a peanut sauce on a bed of spinach. And my kids love these chicken satay skewers. So we we try to we try to get some variety in the household and we try to make sure that nights are easy when I might be
1: gone working the game. And with the blues out of the playoffs now, that's a little bit easier. Ah, good for you. All right. So 14 goals in game one of the Western Conference. How -hmm. many games in the Eastern Conference Final will it take? to record a total of 14 goals with <sighs> Igor Shesterkin and Andre Vasilevsky providing, I, like, I'm as excited as I was to watch game one last night. I, I'm equally pumped for this series between the Rangers and the Lightning. I really think the Rangers have, I think they've got a legitimate chance to knock off the two-time defending champs. And I can't wait to see how this goaltending matchup plays out I you know what do you what do you think
2: Kevin Woodley from Ingoal Magazine called it goalie porn and he's exactly right (laughs) this is it this is the pinnacle you know I mean last year we were treated to Marc-Andre Fleury with the Vegas Golden Knights against Carey Price with the Montreal Canadiens and you know that was kind of an old guard matchup that everybody in the goalie community was so excited about and now we get a 26-year-old Igor Shcherkin and a 27-year-old Andre Vasilevsky going head-to-head you've got the best money goaltender in hockey and Andre Vasilevsky, you've got the best goaltender from this season in Igor Shosturkin. And this rivalry could play out for a decade, Scott, because yeah. these goalies aren't going anywhere from these teams. You'll pay whatever, okay? And I think Vasilevsky's contract at this point is a bargain yeah. because that guy's the rock of that club. <laughs> um, I, it's, it's an interesting series because it is so different from Colorado Edmonton, right? Like yeah. We really expect the goaltenders to factor heavy in this series between the Rangers and Lightning. Whereas the other series, I don't, uh, to me, and this may sound bad. I think the goal is really, you know, they don't matter a ton out West. Like I think, it's true. you know, one of those, somebody's going to steal a game out West and that might be the difference in the series, but it won't be the overarching theme. Yeah. Lightning Rangers, we're going to get that. And I, I think that the Rangers, and I, by the way, I love the chaos factor that you have Scott of picking, um, you have what Rangers and Rangers Oilers in the finals. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. And, and I'm going I for love the it. title. Yeah. Throw that MA right down the, the hole, you know. <laughs> but um, the Rangers to me have to win the first two games yeah. of this series on home ice. Yeah. They have to. It's non negotiable to me. If they don't win the first two games, I don't think they can pull it off. Okay. Um, but they can. And they've been really good against the Lightning this year, and jerking in particular, three and zero. He's got a shutout against them, nine fifty eight save percentage in three games. Wouldn't it be crazy if this first game was six to five, Scott? <laughs> I'm just, I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for
1: it. Totally.
2: So, do you think? Here's the thing, though: like at, New York's got a lot of star power. Obviously, Tampa Tampa Bay has plenty as well. Do you think pulling out of the lineup is going to affect Tampa Bay enough that they'll struggle against the Rangers?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I, I, of course, like a lot of people, even though I picked Tampa to beat Florida, I imagine the absence <clears throat> of Braden Point against the offense of Florida might, might be a, a factor, and it, it wasn't, <clears throat> and that, to me, that's more on Florida, but I, I think it will be in this series because New York has been getting production from up and down the lineup. I mean, whether it's Cop or Vetrano, the kid line, Cheadle's been unbelievable. Mm-hmm. That puts even more pressure on guys like Nick Paul, Brandon Hagel, who've been really good, Nick Paul especially. <clears throat> I think that puts a lot of pressure on that Tampa depth, um, you know, especially Corey Perry, maybe a bit nicked up. So I, I, I think it has a chance to be a determining factor. What, what do you think? Because they obviously did okay without Braden Point. <laughs> I think they'll be okay without Point.
2: Yeah. Um, I re- harken back to 2020 when they had Stamkos out of the lineup and they won a Stanley Cup. Uh, you
1: know, Stamkos
2: had the one magical shift that he scored on. Yeah. But to me, there's, there's only two players on Tampa that I think can put them out of the running. And it's the big cat in goal, number 88, and it's Victor Hedman. I think if Tampa is missing either of those players, They're a completely different team.
1: Sure.
2: Now, now, I mean, if you're going to end up missing Point and Kucherov and Palat, or like if it starts to be a cascade effect, you know, call off the hounds. I get it. But those are the two that I think that they're in trouble without. And until they get to that point, it's Tampa Bay wins on ethos. They went on system. They went on belief and they went on skill behind those three things, Scott. Yeah. And there's plenty of skill there. So, yeah.
1: um,
2: but I love the underdog mentality of the Rangers. I love Gerard Gallant as a coach. So, like <laughs> look at his track record. He gets the most out of his players and he's doing it again with the Rangers with a team that we thought was still a year or two away. And they're yeah. very much a contender right now. And I think,
1: yeah
2: if they win those first two games, Scott, they could do it because that's, if you win those first two, you go up to nothing. All you need is just him to steal one more game. and You're going to win the series in my eyes. I and I think he's totally capable of doing that.
1: I can't wait. I'm, I'm pumped for it. So, um, all right. Getting near the end here. A uh, couple of bits of news. I, maybe not a surprise, but <clears throat> Marty St. Louis mm-hmm. confirmed a, uh, so I see the reports three year deal with the Canadians I'm told it could be three plus an option. Um, no surprise there, but I think that's really, you know, again, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty in the coaching marketplace right now with six teams, maybe more looking for head coaching yeah. um, replacements or, or to fill spots. Um I'm not surprised. I'm really pleased for Marty St. Louis. I think he's been a great fit. I think Montreal has a chance to bounce back, although that Atlantic's going to get pretty hot and heavy pretty quickly um, in terms of being able to jump into a playoff spot. But I, I, I love his, I just love what he brought to a Canadiens team that was pretty low in the dumps when he arrived. I think the timing of it's really good for St. Louis because
2: obviously that's a team that's growing, that's going to have core pieces. You know, assuming they're going to retain that first overall pick and take a centerman and Shane Wright, that's what I would imagine would happen. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but they need to fill that space. You know, Marty St. Louis is learning on the job. There's no way to say it any other way. Yeah. But I think it's a benefit to him to do it along with his, with his players as that team looks to get better once again. And, you know, it'll be important who he brings in to surround him and who is who remains on staff, at least through the coaches in Montreal, um, because you're going to want to have somebody to really lean on, you know, I'd expect a, a real veteran coaching voice to be alongside Marty, but I love the fresh look at it. And it makes me curious to see what can happen there. Cause I feel like it's a little similar to Brenda Moore taking over in Carolina, a little bit unknown and, you know, just felt like a graduation more so than a, you know, an anointing. So um, I like that. I'm just, I'm curious to see how long it takes for the, for these other teams to all shake out because you'd think most of the names are already out there for people that'll be available for jobs, but until the season's really over, how many times do these get announced? So um, boy, there's some intriguing names though. There really are. And you've got everything from your retreads to your up and comers to the in-between people that are looking for another opportunity Yeah. Um, But I think more than anything, what we're really finding out is that the people like the Barry Trotz's and the Rick Tockets of the world that they're going to be able to choose where and when they want to coach and it will be their pick. And I think that right now the coaches actually have a lot of power right now compared to teams that, you know, they're. In racing, we used to call this ride blocking, where there'd be one driver that Thank didn't you. have a seat, a you know, a car for the next year, and he had multiple offers to choose from, and he was ride blocking because everybody else was waiting for it. <laughs> Wait, yeah. That's Barry Trotz right now in my eyes, you know, because totally I, is no doubt in my mind. Everybody in the in the world wants Barry Trotz as their head coach. So until he makes a decision, where's this waterfall going to go? Yeah. Um, and that's I love that because it like I like the coaches to be able to choose a good spot. but I think it also starts
1: to streamline things into good places for people once that first shoe drops. Yeah. I I talked to somebody this morning because we were talking about Marty St. Louis and he, this person said the exact same thing that there is a, there's a a domino effect waiting to happen. And that it, that first domino is going to be Barry Trotz and that this person's perception was, the Barry wasn't in any real, <clears throat> real hurry to get it done. Which have heard the same. <laughs> that's totally, you know, I mean, you know, good on Barry Trotz, right? You yep. work as hard as you've done and you accomplished what you've accomplished. It's got to be his timetable. And we'll see, you know, again, I, I, I'm led to believe that it's really important to Barry that it's not just the coaching job, but what else might be involved? What, you know, input he might have, what kind of, you know, think down the road, right? I mean, I and I I totally get that. And maybe not all teams would be comfortable with it. Maybe teams will change how they view it in an effort to get Barry Trotz on board. And I think he's of that kind of caliber that you might change how you, you know, like, let's, uh, you know, I don't, what do I know about what goes on in Vegas? But my sense is they might not be a team that would be open to giving away power, but maybe they would be if it meant bringing Barry Trotz aboard. I don't know. That's, but.
2: I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, until you know, who's available, who's to say um, that has been historically a hesitant spot for that. But if you're dealing with somebody you think could bring you that cup, maybe your mind changes with things, you know? Not so to, right?
1: you can't.
2: yeah, for sure. Um, to, to take things, you know, another direction here, and, and hopefully would we'll end on something a little different. You had a great piece out this week and I want to be able to give you the floor on it um, for involving hockey Canada and the response to um, allegations of sexual assault that took place and uh, everything surrounding that, Scott. And yeah. you had a really opinionated piece on it that I think was important. Um, and just, you know, seating the floor to you here to kind of explain the thought process on, on that and where yeah. hockey, hockey Canada stands in this.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, to me, it's a, it was a, an incredibly troubling story. I would give Rick Westhead at TSN the, the props that he deserves as one of the top investigative journalist, you know, on lots of fronts, but certainly with lots of hockey topics and a civil suit that had been filed by a young woman in London, Ontario, after an incident at a hockey Canada um, gala event and golf tournament back in 2018, involving a number of players um, or some players from the world junior championship gold medal winning team from 2018. Um, And 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 eight players who were involved in uh, in in an incident with this woman in a hotel room, um, and a settlement out of court. Um, she had named Canadian Hockey League, which is the umbrella organization over the three major junior leagues, Hockey Canada, and the players. And that there's been a settlement. And um, so, I guess what's troubling for me is that the details are horrific. It's a horrific incident that is laid out, hasn't been proven in court, but the incident is despicable. And it speaks to me about, you know, ongoing issues of what is, what is really hockey culture, what goes on in a dressing room, what is, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And I guess the fact that Hockey Canada feels that they can put out a release uh, and, and feel that that is enough uh, in explaining their position and um, what an investigation after the incident, after the allegations were, you know, the circumstances were made known to them, that they feel they don't owe it to anyone to share that information, what they learned, what safeguards might be put in place moving forward to protect against this. Um, I, I find it very disheartening, and I'll tell you what. Really, I was was really impressed, and we'll see how this turns out. But I thought the NHL stepping forward as soon as they became aware of the statement of claim and the allegations that were made, they put out a statement saying, "We and I don't have them in front." Of, reprehensible, I think, was one of the terms that they used, um, but obviously, believe that it's a serious enough matter that they are going to investigate on their own because many of those players from that 2018 team have gone on to uh, forge um, early NHL careers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not everyone on that team, but there were players who were involved and the NHL is, has pledged to find out what exactly happened. And if any players on NHL clubs were involved in the incident in that hotel room in London. And I'm, I don't know what will come of that. I hope the NHL is diligent about it. And I hope there is some transparency about what they discover um, because it it just, it was, it's, it's not right what happened and it's not right how this has been handled in my mind to this point. So that's, that's a long winded answer, but that's, yeah,
2: but that's, you've got to, your piece is powerful and pointed and it's right on par. I mean, this is, the, these are the things that we can't have in, it's not just hockey, it's sports life, just trying to do the right thing. Um, right. I tell let's be you what, better.
1: let's be better that's, about this. And yeah. if you can't be better, let's, let's have some accountability. I guess that's for me, the part right now, where is the accountability in any of this? Yeah. So anyway, I feel badly. I, it seems trite, but I, you know, what happened to that young woman? Is unconscionable, and right. you know I wish her all the best. She didn't want to go to police. She didn't want to name the players. That's totally her right. I hope she finds some peace out of this. I hope she gets. I hope that she is able to move forward from this. But boy, it it is, and you know, as a parent, as somebody in you know who loves the game, it's 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 tawdry. It's 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 it's, it's the it's, ugly side
2: of it's the ugly side of junior hockey. I'll say that. Out. Yeah. Um, I got one thing for us to end on that's going to be right. Good. worthy of a smile. Um, your impressions on Jason Spezza, who retired this week, 19-year NHL career. Um, one of the people that I really looked up to, you know, yeah. and so much of my career was spent with a month or month and a half with players at the NHL level, and, yeah. and Spez was one of them. Uh, yeah. But, man, when he talked, I listened, and I just I felt a real bond with him because – the studious nature he had of the game. He looked at it through a very wide lens compared to a lot of people. You know, we'd be in there messing around with our sticks and changing curves and the things that all the old schoolers did. And so um, I just have all the time in the world for Jason. And I know he's going to be a really influential person in this game, but you know, Scott, you got to cover Jason for
1: a lot of his career, sometimes very intimately with Dallas. Any impressions? Totally. And it's, I'm good on you for, let's end on a very positive note. And, and it's hard. You would be hard pressed to find anyone in the game who does not have only positive things to say about Jason Spezza. And I'm old enough that I recall, you know, I remember going to Windsor, Ontario, um, and meeting with Jason Spezza during his draft year. And, you know, the talking about the pressure being the, Turned out he was number two after Ilya Kovalchuk, but for a long time, he was a pre- presumptive number one pick. And just it's so even at that age, very insightful, talking about the pressure, about moving away from home, about his family. And every time throughout the, his long career, when we had you know the opportunity to chat and especially during that season in Dallas, Uh, And he and I, you know, would shared some messages over the last couple of years after he moved back home to Toronto and joined the Maple Leafs. And uh, I'm just really pleased for him that he has a chance to, you know, stay connected to the game and really stay connected to a team that's important to him in his hometown. I I wish him all the best. And yeah, I'm with you, Mike, just one of the good, good people in the game and you just want good things to happen to them. Yep. I totally agree. And what a dream story. Come back home,
2: you know, to Toronto, get to work for, finish your career with the team. And, and let's be very clear on this. He walked off on his terms. You know, he finished his career. He said, this is enough. He didn't wait for three months or he didn't wait for an entire season for somebody to try to give him a farewell tour. That's right. I like that. He decisively made up his mind. I know I've been on record of saying that a lot, but congrats to Jason Spezza. What a career. uh, And I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does next.
1: Yep. All right, my friend. Good work is always great to catch up with Dave Jackson and uh, can't wait to see what unfolds. Uh, certainly with the start of the Eastern Conference Final and the West mayhem, what will happen there. But uh, we'll be able to bring it to you next Wednesday when we tape again. So I can't wait already.
2: Here, here. I can't wait either. Cheers, my friend. Thanks for listening to The Suitcase and The Scribe, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode.